And now, business games. Hello there, fellow learner, and welcome to a Learner's Digest edition of Business Games, an educational series where we help you improve your strategic and critical thinking, make sense of the world, and make better decisions under uncertainty. This is episode 2022 and 11 12th. I wish 2022 were better, but it's not. Which in a way only underscores the importance of strategic thinking, good decision making under uncertainty, interpreting weak signals and everything else we've discussed to date on business games. In a minute, there'll be an explanation for my hiatus. But first, housekeeping. New pricing. To reflect the economic situation in the world and our expanding audiences among international community and tertiary students, we've introduced new pricing. It's called Student Gold, Student and Recession Proof Pricing. It has all the same perks of our gold pricing, but at a much lower price of 33 USD per year instead of 111 USD. We run a high trust model here, so we give you the choice to choose your own pricing. If you can afford it, we ask you to kindly self-select into the full premium price. You'll also get an extra benefit of feeling good about supporting independent analytics and education outlet. If you've fallen on hard times but still can spare 350 per month or 33 per year, then feel free to self-select into the student gold pricing. I trust you fully to figure out what's best for you. You'll get the same benefits from either. And please, recommend us to your friends. Feel free to forward this or other newsletters to them or recommend this podcast episode. Next, experimental season wrapped up. Yep, it is, it's wrapped up. Now I was planning to record a special episode to talk about the learnings from, or rather for the podcast itself from the first full season, the experimental one. I'll do this separately and it will be of interest to anyone interested in entrepreneurship or solopreneurship or indeed how I approach running the podcast or what I've learned after having run it for a season. Now, for now, suffice it to say that we've wrapped it up with three premium episodes. A literature review, an introduction to a framework for managers to help assess their experimental culture and see where to invest next to improve it. And finally, the grand finale of summarizing everything and discussing several questions from our members. And the grand finale was also in two shorter episodes. You can find these on the website and given the new pricing, you can all check those out. In fact, the new pricing also involves a seven day free trial. And now the hiatus explanation, a personal story. Okay, here we go. What I'm about to say might be triggering for some of you. So a warning and a reminder, this isn't about you. This is about me. Okay. So I will talk about Ukraine. Now you're warned. This is your time to switch off, log off, cancel the subscription or continue listening and learn a lot, hopefully. Okay. So I was born in the Soviet Union in the South by the Black Sea on the territory of what is still technically Ukraine. I say this as a statement of fact, there is a high likelihood that this part of the world might not be Ukraine much longer the way things are going. I have distant relatives and childhood friends and family friends and their families in the region. They are now very close to, if not on the battlefront itself. By the time you're reading this, some of them might be on the battlefront. We tried 
what we could to help some leave to safety. Our primary method of help is the um, accommodation in the EU where we have connections. So outside of that, being halfway around the world is little we could do. Tanks rolling through the land where I was born. It, it hit me harder than I'd expected. Given that I've been away for around, well, for over 25 years and grew up and matured elsewhere in the quote-unquote West, and hadn't kept up with the news for a good part of the past decade. I was surprised how hard it hit me. I don't wish it on anyone to experience even this type of stress, let alone the actual stress of actually being in a war-torn country. Yet, I now understand, I think, how the Northern Irish feel or those touched by the Second Congo War, which is the second deadliest armed conflict since World War II that nobody talks about with over 5.4 million deaths, or how relatives of people in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Yugoslavia and Libya feel for various reasons. Not the people who actually were there, but their relatives and their compatriots abroad. I believe I now understand how they feel. Now, in my youth, I used to be an ardent Ukrainian, a sort of a mid-core nationalist. I supported the Orange Revolution, was proud of the fact that us Ukrainians being able to stand up for our values peacefully and overturn the regime. Take that, Ruskies, with your Putin. Now, I swapped allegiances from my father's favorite Spartak Moscow to my granddad's Dynamo Kiev in the 1990s. And if you know anything about football, you know that uh, as a kid, swapping allegiances is, is, is not, especially going up against your uh, parents, is not something that's, uh, well, typically done, let's put it that way. I also argue that for there being only one national language, Ukrainian, because, you know, one country, one language. Never mind that more people on the territory of Ukraine were proficient in Russian than in Ukrainian. 76% to 69%, according to a 2010 poll by an agency in Ukraine called Research and Branding Group. As kids in post-Soviet Ukraine, we were taught to hate Russians and blame all our problems on Moscow. We were taught to repeat jokes about killing Russians. For no good reason, just, just so. Yeah, Russians, fuck them. And we'd find them, the jokes, funny and repeat them eagerly. So, for a somewhat fiercely Ukrainian nationalist who spoke Russian, it was strange for me to hear the following story from my childhood's best mate. Now, my mate actually stayed in Ukraine and started the family there, and he'd been even more Ukrainian than I. Uh, still is. So, I meet him and his wife in Amsterdam in 2009, and he was then working for a research center in Kiev, uh, running polls and stuff. And he tells me they were commissioned by an international organization to run a poll asking people, if you had a chance to join Russia overnight, what would you say? Now, that was in 2008-2009. And he told me 65% of all Ukrainians said, yes, we would like to join Russia. And he also told me that the uh, commissioning organization uh, said, uh, yeah, we can't publish that. So, you know... Now, my friend is a good professional, and I have no reason not to believe him. But obviously, I can't prove that this research ever existed, nor can I verify the methodology, even if it did. Take this for what it's worth, right? Even if I find this story credible, you don't have to. There are certainly many other polls that show different things, and some that find similar ones. 
mainly summarized on uh, Russia-Ukraine relations page in Wikipedia. Um, and you can go on to the links provided there to, to get the um, original sources. Now, I'm saying all of the above with one pers- purpose in mind. Paint you a portrait of somebody who is historically very much anti-Russian and pro-Ukrainian. But here's the thing. My personal Ukrainian nationalism stops at bloodshed. So when the Ukrainian nationalists spilled blood at Maidan, then more blood in Odessa, this was it for me. Okay? A break with nationalism. More or less of any kind. And when they kept on spilling blood in Kharkov, then Lugansk, and Donetsk, then Mariupol, with every short fight at their own, at the time, now no longer their own, citizens, every bomb dropped on the civilians, with every subsequent shelling of a school or a hospital, the post-2014 Kiev regime was getting less and less human-like. Farther and farther away from the red line I'd ever be willing to cross. For me personally, Maidan killed Ukraine. Both in literal and a figurative sense. It killed the image of Ukraine that I believed in. And it also split the country that will never be whole again. Not in 2013 borders anyway. There's one side who first pulled the trigger way back in 2014. There's one side who started shooting at civilians and burning civilians alive and throwing Molotov cocktails at the riot police that were armed with nothing more than shields. And this side isn't and wasn't Russia. This is really important to understand. There is no debate and can be no debate given all the evidence that we have about who started firing first at who in 2014. This evidence had been investigated by the UN and published in the NY Times and other mainstream Western media. Back when they were covering the Ukrainian civil war with at least a modicum of journalistic integrity and balance. At a human level, this should be enough for anyone to understand. It's a civil war where a group of individuals fired first and another group of individuals took up arms to protect their own homes. This should be easy enough for to understand. Donbass people have never, not once, gone over to the other side for an act of terrorism. People from Donbass were not involved in any armed conflicts outside of Donbass. On the other hand, the post-2014 Kyiv regime moved in the tanks, started ATO, anti-terrorism operation, opened fire and had been shelling the Donbass civilian infrastructure and homes for the past eight plus years with the silent acquiescence of the international community led by the quote-unquote civilized West. In fact, the Western mainstream media had been dehumanizing the Donbass defenders as, I quote, pro-Russian separatists. As we know, both parts of that description having negative connotations. Separatists are bad, pro-Russian is bad. Now, I care about civilians and I'm against senseless bloodshed. Probably against any bloodshed, to be honest, because all bloodshed is senseless. And what started in 2014 was a senseless bloodshed. And an army first opened fire at its own civilians. And we'll get to these points later with a bit more deep, deeper dive. With a deeper dive. 
any contortions about the so-called international law, about Russia meddling here and there, anything else is irrelevant. No international law protects an illegitimate and unconstitutional bloody coup with the post-coup government, in heavy quotes, giving a command to open fire at its own citizens. Also, for every alleged ham-fisted Russian so-called meddling, let's talk about the actual US meddling everywhere, including the 2014 Ukraine. And then let's have that conversation. So that's a human level. And to be honest, after being out on post-Ukraine, post-Maidan Ukraine since 2014, I have not kept up with what had been going on there. I sort of broke any ties. I even stopped saying that I'm from Ukraine. I was ashamed from being associated with the post-Maidan quote-unquote Ukraine. Now, the civil war continued, but to my shame, I had not tried to help nor even paid attention because it was far away enough. Neither my relatives nor friends were impacted. Plus, I wasn't a fan of Russia or Putin anyway. So anything they meddled in, I didn't want to support. In a nutshell, I was out on the post 2014 Kiev and I was never in on Russia. So I never spoke up. And the Donbas women and children kept being targeted by the Kiev guns. Donetsk, Gorlovka, Lugansk, Makeevka. UN reports about, about 14,000 dead prior to 2022, 10,000 of whom were Donbas people and 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Now that's partly my shame too. Not that I could have done anything, but because I haven't even tried. And then 2022 happened. Russia finally helped Donbass. Because Ukraine wouldn't honor the Minsk Accords, an agreement that it itself signed, agreed to and signed in 2014 and again in 2015. Now, in December 2022, we know more about this than when I first wrote these lines, but we'll get to it in due course. I didn't want to believe this would ever happen. It's still difficult to understand that we crossed this line. Russian tanks under Kiev. Putin, who I disliked, helping Donbas people, who I sympathize with, against the Kiev regime, who I despise, but also killing civilians in my birth town, who I knew as a kid, and dropping bombs next to my relatives, who I deeply care about. This took me out of any other action for a while. Just like at the beginning of the pandemic, I got obsessed with consuming the news, doom-scrolling my way to sleepless nights, getting an illusion of control via knowledge. Which is deeply ironic because I teach people against this fallacy. And I didn't want to write or post or record anything in the first months because there's been a lot of unhelpful posting going on. In fact, I've come to believe that almost all the social posting on this topic is terribly unhelpful, at least from the Western people, or at least it was at the very beginning in the first six months. And I've gotten disenchanted with the mainstream media too. While generally well-meaning but ignorant people on social media can be excused, in my opinion, the mainstream so-called quote-unquote journalists cannot be so-called journalists. Now, we'll address this in further detail too. I get a lot of material to cover that. Now, once I've managed to calm down a bit, and once uh, we did what we could to make sure that we helped anyone we could to keep safe, 
Then the next step was for me to fall back onto what I do best, to analyze the situation. Archilochus, a Greek soldier from 650 BC, said, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. So I find that a good quote. There's always a good ancient Greek quote everywhere in it. Now, because I hadn't been following the situation for eight years, I had plenty to learn. And once I thought I understood the situation, I then faced a dilemma. To share my thoughts and, if so, to do it via business games or not. Now, on the one hand, I didn't want to prostitute myself for a clickbait topic, which this clearly could be. There's too much shit thought and leadership in both words and heavy quotations to highlight my thoughts about exactly how much thought and how much leadership there is in this topic online. So you have disdain for both. Now, it's a politicized topic and being misunderstood will get one labeled Russian propagandist, and I'm mildly worried about the work implications, but even more so about the fact that I might not be able to change anything except to garner animosity because people by now have probably made up their own mind. And we know from psychology that once a mind is made up, it's very difficult to shift it. So the powerlessness and inability to cut across the divide for me is, is even more of a worry than the actual negative implications. Now, I had heated debates with people who clearly know less than I do on topics, but hold strong opinions, and no amount of evidence sways them. I'm also mildly worried about Ukraine's meritorious skill list, which already led to the assassination of journalists and politicians and some common people in Ukraine. For those of you who do not know what it is, look it up. It's a government-sanctioned kill list where people are being doxxed. Some of them children. We'll cover this later. I'm also clearly biased, right? But being upfront about it, giving my reasons and evidence for my stance. I am against murdering people, so murderers are bad. Stunts should hardly be defended. But in this war, if you're saying that you're against Russian murderers, it's great. If you're saying that you're against Ukrainian murderers, you are blaming the victim. Well, again, back to my first principles. The illegitimate Kiev regime in 2014 started this first. The coup started this first. Donbass people are the victims. Kiev was the aggressor for eight years. We'll cover that. Now, finally, this topic might seem to have little to do with business, nor with games. And one can turn away the customers, right? Though I'll now make the case as to why it's one of the most relevant topics for business and for game theory, or for teaching game theory. Now, these are all the cons of speaking out on the topic. So what are the pros? I've now come to believe that everything is interconnected in a dynamic, evolving system. Meaning, we cannot analyze business strategy outside of macroeconomic trends, we cannot analyze economics outside of geopolitical trends, hunger outside of military action, and access to resources. If nothing else, understanding geopolitics and being able to predict wars and other military conflicts in particular is a key risk management capability that needs development if we are to design a good business strategy.
So wars are by necessity of central importance to business. I wish it were not so, but unfortunately it is. It seems an obvious point, but I've yet to find wars discussed in standard business books on firm value. In particular, violence and capital are inextricably linked. In fact, some of the original European businesses are tea and coffee companies from late 1600s and 1700s. And given that some of them had been implicated in modern-day slavery, do I even need to make a connection between violence and capital and brand value? The brand's actions today are also inextricably linked not only to child labor and poor ecological standards, but also sanctions imposed on various countries, while energy, military, food and primary industry firms are by their sheer existence linked to armed conflicts. So again, a link between economics and business and armed conflicts is of central importance, and we need to talk about it. In a milder version of this theme, individual business growth is inextricably linked to shady dealings, politicians, and borderline illegal activity. Again, a topic that gets surprisingly little coverage at business schools and in the business literature. Take a recent Uber expose called Uberfiles. Massive leak reveals how top politicians secretly helped Uber. Now, this came out on the BBC and was reposted a little bit around the world in mid-July 2022. But I don't recall it making all that much noise. And it had Macron's name implicated in what can only be termed as international corruption. And so what? After mid-July 2022? Crickets. Macron and his government insist that he brought innovation to France, so he did his job. And would do so gladly again. So the story died. Shrug. Now, from the strategic skills point of view, interactions are interactions, no matter the context. So if you want to become better at strategy, which is a study of interactions, we can learn a lot from the behavior of parties at war. Now, business strategy by its birth came out of military strategy discourse, making strategy in general one of the most ancient intellectual and practical undertakings. Even outside of the interactions, we talked on this very platform already of the need to predict the future, analyze weak signals, and interpret the information. The current conflict opens up a tremendous case study in fake news, information manipulation, disinformation warfare, all of which means if we are able to sift through it, we'd become much better strategists by applying critical thinking and figuring out which information is likely to be more reliable. While I might not be able to change the world, I might be able to teach somebody something. And this change has tremendous value in itself, even if only for one person. Compared to the vast majority of the so-called experts on Ukraine out there, I actually have tangible understanding of the situation, plus a critical thinking capacity. Plus I am open about my biases, as per above, but also having been far enough removed from my time there by quarter of a century, I think I'm actually a fairly reliable source of analysis. I'm close enough to be able to understand enough of the nuances, but I'm far away enough to not have been indoctrinated by one side or the other. 
Now, this is exactly the profile of someone who experts advise to bring in to help solve complex problems. Using as an example of a famous elevator problem to teach how to solve complex problems, an author of um, this HBR article advises to bring in outsiders who are boundary spanners, he calls them. I quote a short excerpt from the article Are You Solving the Right Problems by Thomas Weddell Weddlesburg in HBR from January, February 2017 issue. As research by Michael Tushman and many others has shown, the most useful inputs tends, input tends to come from people who understand, but are not fully part of your world. Charlotte, as a person involved, was close enough to the front lines of the company to know how the employees really felt, but she was also close enough to management to understand its priorities and speak its language, making her ideally suited for the task. In contrast, calling on an innovation expert might well have led the team's members further down the innovation path instead of inspiring them to th rethink the problem. So the key point about an expert that you want to involve is somebody who understands enough, but not too closely involved. And I believe I am that person on the Ukraine situation. I've been removed long enough but I also had a decent amount of information and personal connections, and I can understand all the languages involved. So on balance, I decided that the pros outweigh the cons. We are trying to teach our kids to stand up for what we believe is right, and I believe it is right to analyze the situation and share this analysis. I also believe it's imperative to help stop the humanitarian catastrophe. And understanding the situation for what it is rather than for what we want it to be, will help us come up with tangible, realistic solutions. We can become better strategists and learn to better evaluate information by looking at the current conflict. In other words, this has direct relevance to the business game's purpose of learning to make better strategic decisions under uncertainty. I also happen to have a better analysis of the situation than most people out there. Now, because you're probably fatigued out of this topic, it is a heavy topic, and because there are actual military and geopolitical experts out there who are worth their salt, I will be mixing this content with our other planned season, the mental one. It might not be one-to-one, -one, but I will be sprucing in some other content. This, this will dominate, but there will be some reprieve. There's also a huge overlapping topic of emotional biases in falling for propaganda, con artists and misinformation, which would naturally affect decision-making and understanding of the news. As a little aside, after having watched quite a lot of documentaries on uh, con artists, it's, it's quite, to me, the parallels are quite stark. Very intelligent people tend to fall, to seemingly fall for relatively simple cons. And I think there's something behind it. And it's the, it, basically, it's the same um, situation at play that allows or not just very intelligent people to trust the mainstream news, CNN, whatever. So we'll cover that. Now, this topic is a super important one, as it affects everything in this world. It affects energy, it affects food, and every other business. I will introduce much content most relevant to the topic 
as we covered in our experimental season, so consider this an unfortunate bonus material, more building on the experimental season topics. Now, unfortunate for obvious reasons, I'd rather we hadn't had this material. I'd rather we hadn't had the war. But now that we have, we can and must learn something. Now, there will be several format changes to how the experimental season was run. Okay, so the following six seem the most obvious. Number one, I will produce many blog posts and episodes which will be free. They will be for the price of an email subscription, but generally they will be free. This topic carries too much of a public good aspect to be behind the paywall. Now, I will in turn depend much more on the generosity of the readers and listeners to nonetheless become paid members, even to the lowest cost, in order for me to continue my work. And of course, the paid members will get all the transcripts, which will continue being behind the paywall. Number two. I'll use the newsletter slash deep dive style episodes to publish this material. And these will be delivered to your inbox as well as the podcast episodes will be public. The transcripts will continue being premium content. So I said that already. Number three, I'll focus on the Ukraine situation to start with, but I intend to expand the topic to cover all the geopolitical conflicts. Quite obviously, the big one is between the USA and China. And that's by Washington's own admission. That's the clearly identified China as the long-term, whatever they called it, adversary, uh, competitor. I, I don't remember. We'll get to it later. Uh, but basically, they said that this this is our uh, this is our big one, controlling China. Uh, so this this conflict right now against Russia is um, a precursor. Number four. What I intend to do, therefore, is to focus on various international topics that pop up and have a deep dive into them. They will somewhat relate to the news, but as usual for educational purposes, I'll try to take a look at longer-term trends. Because we're trying to build something that's, um, that, that lasts a bit longer, sort of evergreen, things you can go back to. So we're not going to be reacting immediately to the news without thinking, but we'll be trying to... Um, spend a little bit of time and then re release the sort of a long-term trend analysis. So instead of commenting on every pressing news item, I'll be focusing on the analysis of the underlying trends and scenario analysis for the future. Number five, through this analysis, we'll be covering, using, teaching and expanding our game theoretic and analytic toolkit. So we'll use all of this to not only analyze the situation, but also teach people how to analyze the situation and improve our own analysis while we're doing it. Number six, all of the above means that unlike the previous season, I won't be able to plan the whole arc of the season's content and then plan the guests and all the connective tissue episodes. The Ukraine part is pre-planned and some pre-recorded already, but developing topics and conflicts and trends will, by their nature, continue to be developing. And this other international analytics-driven content will by design be reacting to the international developments in the medium term. Now you can treat the above to be a pivot from the more planned theory-driven exposition of topics to the on-the-job training as if you were an international relations and international business analyst and you were just, you know, just being exposed to your new job. 
We'll be going off of the developing stories and be teaching the toolkit based on real-life case studies as they are unfolding, or close to it. Now, I'm going to tell you my analysis, the way I see it, the way I analyze. Any analysis has three components. Incoming information or data, analytical approach, this is our process, and our analytical apparatus, that's our mind, including emotions and biases. Now, I covered my own biases, and I'll continue highlighting them as we go along. Sometimes they'll be hidden, or their effects will be hidden, even to myself. Now, you can judge from the side a bit more objectively, perhaps. That's the value of external consultants that we discussed with Professor Chowdhury and J.P. Kesslin in our mainstream episodes, and highlighted in that uh, HBR example that I presented just now. Ultimately, I've come to the realization that it's the right thing to do, and I'm doing it at a cost to myself. As of this moment and into the foreseeable future, I get no money nor any business prospects from Russia. So there is no personal gain in putting forward an analysis whose outcome might support Russian narrative. In fact, there is all the pressure in the West to wrap ourselves in a blue and yellow flag and cancel anyone who dares not to. That's an understandable emotional response, and it's a response that is very close to my old self, as I already mentioned. And I think that this response is wrong, it's 100% wrong, for two reasons. First of all, any major conflict with massive armies must by necessity be solved not with emotions, but with a cold heart and a clear head. That's the only way to minimize casualties, destruction and a humanitarian catastrophe. There are no costless actions. And I think it's fair to say that we must not go to war on a whim. So an emotional response to a crisis is bad. Well, it's actually a terrible idea from the process point of view, because it can lead to more problems, drastic, devastating problems. There's no upside in an emotional response. There's only downside. Now, second of all, people who want to get an emotional response from you typically paint things in black and white, good versus evil, right or wrong. Have you ever had a conflict resolution situation, be it at work, with your friends, with your spouse, or taking a side in another marital conflict, where you successfully resolved the conflict by blaming one side only? Would you bet your life on knowing which side is absolutely evil? Especially jumping in mid-conflict, without really understanding what's going on, without looking at the history that led to it? I, I don't think it's helpful. In fact, I'm sure it isn't. And yet, judging by the way this conflict is portrayed in the West, you're clearly being manipulated to have an emotional response which switches off your critical thinking capability. You will probably recognize that it's by now on brand for me to say something along the lines of, well, it's a bit more complex than that. So in short, the two reasons are the process reason, so you shouldn't have an emotional response if you want to solve a complex situation, and two, you're being manipulated. Okay. All in all, here are the topics I want to cover around the Ukrainian conflict and geopolitics more widely. And there's three wide topics. Number one, narrative versus reality. How to understand you're being manipulated and how to filter misinformation. Now, first of all, you're always being manipulated. I'm manipulating you now. I guess it's impossible not to be. 
or it's impossible to not be manipulating somebody or be manipulated. We always try to convince both ourselves and others that we are right. That's just human nature. Nobody comes along and says, you know what, I'm a... now it would be better if they did, but they don't. And even then we're trying to convince ourselves that we are right, even when we're saying I might be wrong. The emotionally charged language about right and wrong is designed exactly with this goal in mind. To make you make an emotional choice. That's marketing 101. Now, what is possible, though, is to say things like, what's more likely, A or B? Because remember, absolute certainty is an impossible goal. Instead, we want to be able to evaluate likelihoods of what's more or less likely to have happened or to happen. I'll share with you my thinking about some of the narratives that were prevalent in the Western media on this conflict, and especially my approach to analyzing these. You don't have to agree with me or with the outcomes that, or the conclusions that I reach. Just see the questions I asked and ponder them yourself. So I'm trying to teach you the process rather than convince you that my conclusions are right. Now to start with, I'll use the evidence from the Western mainstream and some Ukrainian media to present my analysis. In other words, there won't be anything from the Russian side. Now, once we've established how to analyze the bullshit being basing solely on the bullshitter and using critical thinking, we'll expand the sources or the range of sources and keep on looking at the geopolitical developments from various angles. Topic number two, historical perspective and assumptions, hidden or otherwise. What's the starting position? Any situation must have developed from some starting position to today. Especially if it's a crisis, it's important to understand where it came from. As strategists, we can start from what we have now and see where we can go from here. But if we don't understand how we got to this position to start with, there's high likelihood we might repeat the same mistakes and not be able to get out of our current predicament. Because people and processes that got us here won't necessarily be able to get us there. Whatever there is, wherever there is. Now, I know professional directors who like saying things like, you can't drive by looking in the rearview mirror, which I never understood because if you don't understand where you came from and what led to the problem at hand, how can you find a solution going forward? The only reason you can't drive by looking in the rearview mirror, actually is, is a halfway sensible saying, is because you know the history of how you got here because you drove here. So you actually saw everything as it was unfolding. But that's not what those people mean by saying this. They typically mean do not review the problems that helped us arrive here. Just focus on how to get out, which is a stupid idea. Now, at a higher level of abstraction, in our analysis, your assumptions are your starting position. Now, it's fine if they're explicit. You can look at them and then test them. But what if they're hidden? So if you do not try to uncover your hidden assumptions, it's the same as not looking at your history, at, your, at where you actually said what led to you being where you are. If they're hidden, that's what often trips you up in reality. And the third topic is geopolitical games, the questions. Okay, so here we look at who are the actors 
who all the actors are, what are their possible and partially revealed preferences and likely motivations, what are their relative strengths and weaknesses, what are their beliefs. So we look at all the questions to ask from the game theoretical point of view about geopolitics. So most importantly, we'll see what their actions say about them. Now, in a nutshell, our perception of geopolitics is about logic, facts, emotions, and manipulation. And we'll see how to deal with all of these. So what is to come? There will be long blog posts. There will be weekly newsletter-style emails and podcast episodes. Deeper dives into single topics, also delivered via email and pod. And interviews with the experts. I already have over five hours recorded. That's not to say that there will be one material per week. There could be multiple materials per week. There might be up to three emails delivered into your inbox per week. Now feel free to read them, forward them, or ignore or unsubscribe. As I motivated above, the topic fits precisely into the how to make better decisions under uncertainty, and it also fits into the business leader segment, because armed conflicts impact business. The skills of analysis can be honed on this topic. It's visible and it's important. On the flip side, it is a heavy topic, though I'd argue it's the most important topic in the world as it affects lives, livelihoods and many nations beyond those engaged in the actual armed conflict. And before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you one thing. Please share this content. It's free, it's important and it's useful. If you like it and you think it's useful, please share it to help me reach a larger audience. And I'd like to ask you one more thing. Please subscribe. Your support is vital to us being able to do this in the future. I intend this to be my full-time work and I need subscribers to be able to sustain this. And I look forward to seeing you here soon. <laughs>